for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So what was the surpassing value that he desired so much that he was willing to throw everything away? The value of knowing Christ Jesus and as Lord. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we can look at the world around us and we can be filled with grief because it's a world broken into pieces, ruined, shattered. There is hatred and cruelty. There's good and, and morality, and yet all of it, the evil and the remnants of good are all mixed up together, and, and in all of it, there's a hatred for God. It's a hatred for you. A despising and a rebellion against God the Creator. Sin has so marred what we are, has turned us inside out and made us self-serving and selfish. But most of all, it, it makes us to hate the one who has created us. It's hard to see the world is filled with false religions, cults and, and lies and deception and evil filled with demonic beings, seducing spirits, and doctrines of demons. And out of all of that, there comes a gospel message that is able to recover the worst of sinners and bring them into a right relationship with God and, and begin a walk with you that will last eternity. It's, it's heartbreaking, it's heartwarming, it's good news in the midst of a, a lost and a dying world. I ask, Lord, that you would bring forth a little piece of that, of that goodness out of the book of Romans in this message. I ask it for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is episode 27, The Spirit Testifies, from Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Beginning at verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption, as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, 
so that we may also be glorified with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Romans eight fourteen to 17. We begin by asking a couple of questions. What, what evidence indicates a person's salvation? What is the telltale sign that a person is a child of God, that a person is a Christian? We follow that by this statement. It can be said that all people are children of God by reason of the fact that all people have been created in the image of God. In the beginning, God created man in his own image. However, it is one thing to be created in God's image on the day of creation and quite another to inherit a sinful nature by which we distort that image in the worst possible ways. According to the opening verse in our passage, verse 14, we learn, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. So what does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit of God? In uh, asking this question and answering it, we're going to be leading into, I believe, the way that we can fulfill or answer the questions that I began with, which, you know, what is the proof, what's the indications that a person is truly a son of God, a child of God, and saved, a Christian? The best practice in interpreting Scripture is to let the Bible speak for itself. So when we look at this verse, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, and we ask the question, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? We want to look to the very following verse, and I think it's a perfect explanation. Because in verse 15 it says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear, again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So when he, he makes this statement, which indicates what children of God are, those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. And then he says, for, or because, as a result, you have not received the spirit of slavery. Now, the reason that a person is led by the Spirit of God is because they're no longer slaves that are unable to do what they please. And in this case, they please... What pleases them is actually, in fact, their freedom to do what they please. So instead of being, instead of receiving, instead of having a spirit of slavery, instead of having fear, they have received the spirit of adoption. So a person enslaved to sin, the world, the flesh, and or the devil, does not reveal themselves to be a child of God. A person can have intervals when those things are present because no one is perfect, even though redeemed and a child of God. But at those times, it does not appear that they are because children of God are not governed by slavery anymore, neither are they governed by fear because they don't have to be. A person living in fear, not a fear of God, but fear from and of men, 
does not exhibit the behavior of a child of God. It's just the way it is. You can't be enslaved to sin, enslaved to passions and lusts and desires and sinful desires, and also appear to be a child of God because the two are absolutely not consistent with each other. On the other hand, a child of God has received the spirit of adoption by which, as a son and daughter, they cry out to God as one nearly beloved daddy. So the question now is, how does God care for his children? Uh, The writing of Jeremiah the prophet is roughly about 629 B.C., 629 years at least, before the birth of Christ. Chapter 3115, we read these words, which are repeated in the New Testament. This is what the Lord says. This is a prophecy at least 629 years before. A voice, quote, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamenting and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Whole town in the time of Christ in Israel had all their children killed. And imagine the weeping from that town during those days. Now all the world is in the hands of a sovereign God. His ways are righteous and holy, which he proved to the world, whether the world wants to believe it or not, on a hill called Calvary. It was there that mercy and justice met. Why were these babies killed at the birth of Christ or thereof? Well, because of the brutality of sinful rulers who value their own personal power that they steal for themselves more than the happiness and comfort of the people they control. Herod wanted the Messiah killed. He wanted to end the life of Jesus Christ, having never known him, neither did he care about him. He called all the babies, he he called all the babies, but Christ survived. He slaughtered children from three years old and under, but Christ survived. Why? Because God is sovereign. I'm not going to go into why those babies were allowed to die because there's something much worse than death, and that's hell. And We all bring that upon ourselves by our hatred for God and because of our sinful behavior with one another. It may not feel this way most of the time, but God cares for his children, and nothing can befall them except what God allows. I'm defining God's children as those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, according to the promises of God's word. God sent an angel to speak to Joseph to save the Christ child. He could have saved him any, any way he wanted, but he chose to send a messenger telling Joseph to get out of town, which Joseph did, and he stayed there until he was given word that he could return. Let me share a story. I rarely tell this story can't prove it to be true, neither do I expect any of my hearers to put any stock in it. It is, however, true to my wife and, my, and me, and I believe it had a purpose 
in my life. Late one night, we were getting ready. I was packing the car, and I stayed up late to do so, and I'd gotten home work from work late. But we wanted to leave early in the morning to travel eight hours, 400 miles to my parents' house for Christmas. And uh, while we were there on the road, the fog was really, really heavy. My wife had woken me up at 10 o'clock. It was hard to drive being so tired. It wasn't the most brilliant thing we ever did. And because of the fog, it made, made me see only about a foot in front of the car. I fell asleep. As I was running off the road, my wife screamed later to tell me that a hand had touched her on the shoulder and there were three kids in the back of the car and they were all sound asleep. We went down into a ditch that was about 30 feet deep. When we got to the bottom, there was a little, uh, little layer of snow. I tried to pull the car out. Every time I tried, it was almost tipping over, at least frontwards. Then I backed the car out, tried to back it out, and the, the, wind, the wheels were just spinning at the bottom of the hill, very steep hill. I got out, tried to push it, couldn't get it up. I went to the top of the hill to flag down some help guy no bigger than myself and I'm not a very big man you know got out of a car and came down to the bottom of the hill with me and I said well let's both try to push it up well to my surprise the, the, the car went right up the hill got to the top of the hill my wife's the tires started to spin she brought it to a stop and then we went up to the I went up the hill with the man I uh, said goodbye he took off and then I got in the car, and we drove for a couple of hours, never thinking really anything of it. I mean, we're still in shock from the time we went off the road. About two hours later, we stopped for breakfast. No one had said a word. Everybody's heart had been beating so hard. And so we just sat there saying nothing for a long while. Uh, towards the end of the meal, my wife and I, we looked at each other, and uh, she said, you know, a curious thing, when we were on the hill... Uh, uh, when you went up to walk up to the top of the hill, I put the handbrake on. This was uh, about 1978, and we had a car that when you pulled up the handbrake, on the flat surface, dry flat surface, the car was not going anywhere. And yet she forgot to take the brake off, and yet the, the car went up the hill. You know, almost at the same time we looked at each other, and we... Just, I could see it in her eyes, and it was like, I think we've been visited by an angel unaware. Now, I'm a conservative Christian. I never look for miracles. I don't feel any need for miracles. I've beheld the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart and my life, which is what this lesson is about. Uh, but, you know, in a small way, that, ev that event began to open the door to an, an awareness of, of spiritual warfare, of angelic as well as demonic beings that have become a small part, but a part of my discipleship and counseling ministry. I happen to, to truly believe, as many people say, that we believe in angelic beings and demons, even though I think more often than not, I get a look like I have two heads. 
if I start to bring up spiritual warfare and I, I kind of, I get kind of a scoffing rather from people rather than really a belief in it. Now, the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, medical doctor, that is, who was a wonderful pastor uh, in the beginning and middle of the 20th century, makes this comment in his books on spiritual warfare. With the advent of the 20th century, psychology came in and spiritual warfare went out. I think that's a very accurate and a very true statement. Now, I say those things for this reason, that this lesson centers around what takes place in the heart, in that place where conviction uh, lives. The evil that God does allow is to fulfill his higher purposes. Christ ended on the cross to serve. Christ's end was on the cross. And that end was to serve God's purposes. When Jesus' brethren suffering persecution and martyrdom, uh, it always ends in exaltation to the one who reveal who they truly are. People, you know, we, we testify what we are by the choices we make, by the things we believe in our heart. And it, it, it ends up how we live our lives. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God make glorify some and not others? Well, one day there will be a testimony to the world. All people who receive Christ, just as in the Old Testament as in the case of Noah, by which we are told he condemned the world of his day. Every generation has people that condemn the world. Who do not there are those people who do not believe in God's plan of salvation. And then there are those people who to the death believe in God's plan of salvation. One condemns the world. The other is condemned with the world. There is a testimony yet to be told, but the people of God receive the Spirit's testimony within themselves. In verse 16 that we read earlier, in that passage from 14 to 17, in Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If we say God speaks to me, or I hear God's voice, people will respond with a sarcastic question more often than not, not necessarily in the church, but uh, in the world. So God talks to you. To which I will respond, if God doesn't talk to you, you're not saved. Now, again, I'm a conservative Christian. I'm not looking for vocals. I'm, I'm not looking for an audible voice. But if God doesn't speak to a person, if he's not in that kind of a relationship with God, then he's not saved. Let's consider the words of the Apostle Paul at this juncture. 
But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So what was the surpassing value that he desired so much that he was willing to throw everything away? The value of knowing Christ Jesus and as Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish, that's actual cow dung in the original, so that I may gain who? Christ. And may be found in him. Identification in him. Tell me how these things happen without knowing the person. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And you know the difference between all the religions of the world and a true faith in Jesus Christ, in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it's belief in a system, belief in a doctrine, in a teaching, or belief in a person that is known by someone. Verse 10 He goes on, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, fellowship is partnership. It's, 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 how can you be partners with somebody? There are silent partners, but still there's always communication. We, We know what part we play in the business whatever part we're playing and whatever it is that we're partnering partnering with, there's a knowing one another. How does one know the power of Christ's resurrection without knowing Christ? It's, It's ludicrous. That having been all said, I'm not talking about learning facts. We're talking about intimately knowing a person. Knowing someone personally, personally, knowing someone in their, some, their character, their desires, their will, their behavior, their reactions, their actions, what is it, what, what was it that made Jesus tick? That's what Paul wanted to know. The scripture is the revealed person of God in 66 books that tell us the history of the world and that God was behind everything that happens. Past, present, and all the prophetic statements throughout the scripture. Good comes directly from him and the evil is permitted for a time to accomplish his eternal purposes. But knowing these facts is not the same as knowing him. Now, what we want to understand is how these things take place. So the following verse tells us this. First, the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies that we are children of God. Now that testimony 
is powerful and it's more than mere words. It's, it's more than sitting in a classroom, listening to a person instruct, even like I'm doing right now, and then hearing what they say and then saying to yourself, oh, I like that. I'll believe that. No, this is more than intellectual assent. It's more than facts entering the brain. No, the, the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. We're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within. He makes us his dwelling place in many places, in many ways, many areas in the scripture. This is saying that that spirit who lives within the, the heart and the soul of one who has believed, one who has been born again, one who has been regenerated, met, made new, one who's had his heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, within that person, the Spirit makes himself known and testifies to that person that they are the children, the child of God. Secondly, that they are heirs. We are heirs. We're going to inherit something from this person that Paul wanted to get to know, that he was getting to know, that every Christian who is a true Christian gets to know. Third, and he becomes more specific, and he says, heirs, heirs of God. Not only heirs, but heirs of the one who has and possesses everything. So that we inherit everything. Everything God is, all the material things are immaterial compared to the character of God, the love of God, the honesty and truthfulness of God, the integrity of God. All of these attributes which belong to God, we get to inherit. A little bit different than the world we're living in right now. Fourthly, we are told that the Spirit testifies that we are fellow heirs with Christ. So Christ lays down his life as the Lamb of God. He professes a dying love for those whom he buys back by paying the price of their sin. He takes that sin to himself and he sets them free. And not only that, he becomes a fellow heir so that as he inherits all things because he deserves all things, so he places on us his identity so that we inherit all things. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. He gets our death, we get his life. He gets our hatred or the penalty of our hatred for God the Father, for God Almighty, and we get his love for God the Father. And on the story goes. We become fellow heirs with Christ. Don't miss the main point. The Spirit testifies of these things within the heart of the believer. Now this is a certainty that we really need to grasp hold of. Are you getting the significance of Paul's message about how the Spirit testifies? He testifies first that the redeemed, those bought by the blood of sacrificial sufferings of Christ, become part of the divine family. A child is a member of the family. In this case, it's the divine family. The divine family says, let us go down and make man in our image. This is the eternal God. No beginning of days, no end of life. 
We can't conceive of what he is and how that happens, but he has always been. Think back a hundred years. We can't think and see it because we weren't there, but we understand history. We understand how time goes by. So you look back a hundred years, a thousand years, 6,000 years. We're not there, but God's there. There's nothing. There's no angels. There's only light. There's only the presence of God filling a universe where only He exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a loving relationship within the Godhead. That's all there is, and that's all there ever needs to be. But He takes it upon Himself to create And when he creates, he comes up with a plan by which he can have the closest possible fellowship that he has, and it's through substitution. It's through substitutionary death and a resurrected life. We are children of God, heirs of God, who inherit what he possesses. Furthermore, we are fellow heirs with the divine Son, putting us on a par with him. The purpose of this testimony from God the Holy Spirit is to make us feel secure. Here and now, it's about security. Here and now, it's about knowing what we can't know any other way. To what end? To this end. We've never seen God. All this is by faith. To what end? When our identity is Jesus Christ, and we see ourselves in him. So the Father sees Christ when he sees us. You get that? Our identity is Jesus Christ. And we see ourselves in him. But the Father sees Christ when he sees us. Then we are safe, we feel safe, we act as though we are safe. When that reality, the reality of this truth is impressed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And if God permits bad things to happen, then the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said that on the road to Damascus. When Paul was on his way as he had been to destroy, imprison, and persecute Christians. Christ identified himself with us in the best possible way, at the most important time. Jesus has chosen to place his identity upon us to receive Christ in truth and not as a mere profession. Faith first comes through hearing, Romans 8, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But there is more than There is more that God does to make these truths known to us. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me tell you, this testifying beats out any miracle that a person can behold with their eyes. When Abraham, when uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the parable, the story told by Jesus, and they went to hell, And the rich man wanted, in the worst way for Lazarus, to go back because if he went back to his brothers, his brothers would see one risen from the dead and they would believe. And what did Abraham say? You know, if they don't, they have to learn the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe that someone's raised from the dead. No miracles can replace 
what God the Holy Spirit alone can do by testifying within a man's heart. Miracles testified to Jesus Christ when he was on earth and people didn't believe. And then Christ went to the cross and what did he say? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. It's the love of Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit that draws men to Christ. If you don't believe in the working of the Holy Spirit, I think you need to rethink that really carefully. Let us look quickly at the hall of faith from, Re- from Hebrews chapter 11. We read such things as these. Begin 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have opportunity to return. See, they weren't even thinking about it. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Why? Because their faith is in an unseen God. They take him at his word. Why? Because they trust him. How do they trust him? They believe the word from God because God has opened their heart and placed his own love within them. There's no other explanation. No explanation whatsoever. Romans 8, 7 makes it very clear. Apart from that working of the Holy Spirit and rebirth, man is unwilling and unable to submit to the law of God. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Verse 35. And others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, on mountains, and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now that's, that's the testimony, of, in part, of Hebrews chapter 11, of people who fulfilled what I'm talking about in this matter of the Holy Spirit testifying. And most of these men that are, all these men that are being talked about were in the Old Testament prior to Christ giving himself on the cross. They had but a shadow of things to come. We have the very substance according to Hebrews. The place of Christian maturity is simply this, the full assurance of faith. The place of Christian maturity is simply this, the full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10, 19, 21, and 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is a great statement. That is a great statement. Faith in what? Christ is our high priest. I mean, read Hebrews, and that's really the main issue. Many things stem from it, and many uh, teachings from the book of Hebrews. But don't miss the high priest, because if you do, you, you miss everything, really. And because he's the high priest, we have our conscience cleansed from an evil conscience. We have our, our hearts sprinkled clean, sorry, from an evil conscience. I will always remember sitting in the waiting room, waiting for my wife who was expecting a firstborn as she was um, in uh, just a checkup. And I was reading through the book of Romans, and I recognized that the words were in the past tense. I mean, I was just a really young Christian. And I realized, and I'm sitting there, I'm saying, wait a minute, saying I am saved, past tense. Like, this is, this is not something I work for. This is a gift. This is like, this is great. You know, I, I started having the, the dim beginnings of the light dawn and the peace that sweeps over you when you recognize you're saved. Not something to take advantage of, really actually something to appreciate and live all the more for Christ. When a person receives a full assurance of faith, then he has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Three places in the New Testament talks about sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sealing is the Holy Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1.13. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a promise. And that promise is placed within our hearts as surely as the Holy Spirit exists within us. Sealing in the ancient world served as a, a legal signature like a, a piece of wax placed over something that if it breaks, then you know it had been tampered and opened. This seal is unbreakable, and it guarantees the promised contents within it, behind it. Spiritually, the seal is the stamp of God, so the believer may know he is secure. Also, the seal is until the day of redemption, and that's Ephesians 4.30 sealed, we're sealed until the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed until the day of redemption. After the day of redemption, we receive a new body. We, we see partly in faith, we see partly by sight. There are seen things that will never be seen. People talk about eternity as though it's all by sight. I will see God. I will see the presence of God. I will see the glory of God. I will know his presence. I will know that he, I will not know but by faith that he always was. I don't, I could be wrong here, but I don't think so. I don't think that God is going to show us eternity past any more than he's going to show us infinite, infinity. I, I suppose it could be possible, but we're never going to be equal with God. We're not meant to be. We're meant to share his characteristics. We're meant to share his holiness. We're meant to share his glory, his beauty, his love, his mercy, 
We're just meant to share all of that, and, and who knows how much more. But we're never going to be God, and I don't want to be God. There's one God, and I'm satisfied with Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, John wrote in chapter 3, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. We will be like Him, not as God. We will be like Him in character. And everyone who has this hope set on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. The world does not know who we are, but God does. And He makes that known to those who belong to Him in their hearts. Because God cannot lie, the seal is also a pledge. He says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who has sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. It's about what's in our hearts. We're not sealed for God so that when he opens the seal, he knows we belong to him. That's, that's ridiculous. The pledge is for us. It's not for God. The Lord knows who are His, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. No, that seal is for us. It's for our confidence, our full assurance of faith, so that we walk not by sight, not, not by sight, but by faith. And that faith becomes an assurance. As we are told, those who are led being led by the Spirit of God. These are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Our Heavenly Father, this is a sweet, sweet lesson to know that we can get close to the loving God and that we can love him whom we once hated. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son the proof that you were willing to give the best that there is for sinful, fallen men. I don't want to say for the worst that there is because I, I believe that demons are worse than men. Satan is worse, of, of worse than any man. I believe that because they stood, he stood in the presence of the living God and he fell from that place. It's not for us to judge. It's not for us to stand in the place of God, but just to discern the truth. Lord, we can receive from God all the blessings from you, all the blessings and all the goodness, and we can deceive, be deceived by the worst. Lord, nothing stems from us, not even good. 
were capable of sinning as were tempted and led away, led astray, or were filled with the Holy Spirit and given victory and newness of life. Lord, grant these blessings to the, my hearers. Any out there who are not saved, who have never given their life to Christ, may they bow even now or in, an, in the time near future, in the near future when they will give their lives and hearts to Christ. I pray, dear Lord, for those who belong to you who are, do not possess an assurance of salvation, who have not been sealed by the Spirit. I pray that they would receive this anointing that they might know, that they might understand the relationship that they have with the living God, not built upon works, but upon faith, what Christ did and who he is. I ask these things for his honor and his glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.